So if I were to ask you, um, if there's a, a person that has a unique ability to test your patience, how many of you would have that person? Okay, some of you are like instantly, your hand went up. Okay, like I, I know the person and I'm not gonna have an elbow or anything like that. They may or may not be here tonight. Uh, but, but all of us have had those kinds of, of, of people in our lives. For a lot of us growing up, it was a brother or a sister. I had three brothers and, and they drove me crazy and they know exactly how to push my buttons and they know how many times they have to push it before I will lose it on them. Okay, so they, they know that. We all have those kinds of people. Maybe for some of us, it's a, now it's a mom or a dad or a boss or a coworker, a friend, a neighbor or whatever that just tries your patience. And when your patience has run out, you do something a lot of times that you end up regretting, right? And and so it was about a year or two ago, I was at lunch with one of our pastors, uh, Mark Tatum. And no, this is not a story about me losing my patience and going off on him. Okay. It has nothing to to do with him, but we were at lunch. We were at Spanky's. I'll I'll never forget it. And I got a phone call from my wife and I answer the phone and, and my wife says, well, you're never going to guess what your son did. And I'm like, my son, what are you talking about? My son. Like I thought it was our son, but in this moment, it's my son. Okay. Like I had something to do uh, with, with what happened and I kind of did, but, but, but she says, your son, you're never going to guess what your son did. And I said, well, what, what did he do? And she said, he's an ISS. And I'm like, what, who, like what happened? And she said, well, your son got in a fight. And I'm like, Levi. I mean, we both assumed it was, it was Levi. There's nothing about, it's nothing about Levi. We just both assumed it was him. I'm like, there, there's only two people that in my family, I would assume uh, would be in ISS for a fight. And it would be maybe Levi or my daughter, Nixon. I mean, she's scrappy. Okay. And, and so, but it wouldn't have been my son, Coben. Coben is the sweetest, kindest, gentle. I mean, he, he's so empathetic. And so when she told me it was Coben, I was like, what? No, 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 no. It, it couldn't have been Coben. And she said, I know it's crazy, right? It's nothing to say about Levi or Nixon, but it's just, he's the, the sweet, kind, like extremely empathetic one. And so, so Coben had gotten into a fight at school and got sent to ISS. Well, come to find out, here's what happened. Levi, or rather Coben, had this girl that he liked at his school. And there was another boy who kept picking on this girl, like stomping on her foot, pushing her, going up to her and like putting his hand on her throat and like looking down over her and intimidating her. And Levi, or Coben was getting sick of it. He was getting tired of it. And he kept telling this kid to back off and to stop doing it. And he wouldn't stop doing it. Well, then a new kid comes to school and Coben's reaching out to him. He's befriending him and they're in the lunch line. And this same kid starts bullying the new kid at school. And Coben has had enough. And Coben says, that's it. You and I are fighting at recess. I mean, just straight calls the kid out and says, we're going to, we're fighting at recess. And so at recess, Coben walks up to him. He has his back turned and does the shoulder where he pushes him with his shoulder. Well, then he turns around, tackles Coben. His friends are helping fight Coben. Coben's friends getting, there is an all out brawl happening on the playground. Okay. And it's all because Coben had had enough. He was patient to a point, but then his patience ran out and he responded with physical force. And for that, you may agree or disagree or whatever, but for that, 
He got to pound it from his dad. Okay. He got to pound it from his dad. Cause we've told our kids like, listen, if there's a bully and they're doing something to you, physically harming you, threatening you or someone else, you have our permission to stand up and to fight back. And so Coben lost his patience and fought back. And because I was the one that told my boys, as you may have heard me say a month ago or so, you're not going to be the wolf. That's the bully. You're not going to be the, the, the sheep that get, that gets walked all over. You're going to be the sheep dog. That's going to defend people. And Coben took it seriously. And so it was my son that got to sent to ISS for fighting because I told my kids, you're going to be the sheep dog. Well, listen, did you know that in much of the same way, Jesus is patient. He's tolerant to a point. He's tolerant to a point. And the Bible says there's a day when his patience is gonna run out and he will return. And you might be sitting here tonight and say, wait, wait a second. I thought Jesus was only tolerant. Like, isn't that, isn't that right? I mean, isn't Jesus tolerant of people? In fact, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago that he's inclusive. So isn't Jesus like only tolerant? Like my Jesus could never be intolerant, right? That doesn't sound right. That doesn't feel right to us. But here's what we've been saying in this series. When we allow our feelings, our heart, or our minds to tell us who God is and what he's like or what is right or wrong, it does nothing but create a fake Jesus, an idol that does not exist, that is no God at all. And so here's what we've said in this series. We've got to get to know the real Jesus. Because Jeremiah 17 says our our hearts are are wicked above all else and will lead us astray. And Romans 1 says that the thoughts that we have, that we come up with about God are foolish. They're foolish ideas. They're foolish thoughts. And we trade the truth of God for a lie when we trust our own thinking, our own feeling, what seems right, looks right, or feels right to us. It just leads us astray. It leads us to a fake Jesus that doesn't exist. And so in this series, we've been saying, we, we got to get rid of our opinions, our feelings, our, our thoughts about who God is and what he's like, because we don't have to wonder. We don't have to guess. We don't have to come up with ideas about who he is and what he's like and what he must think. He's revealed himself to us. We said in week one, he's revealed himself to us in two ways. One, one he's revealed himself to us through the scripture, through the word. The Bible says that all scripture in second Timothy chapter three, all scripture is God breathed. God inspired. And so we have the revelation of God, who he is and what he's like and what he wants and what's right and what's wrong. We have it in his word. And then ultimately and finally we saw in week one, Colossians, John one, Colossians one, Hebrews one will tell us that Jesus is God and he is the ultimate and final representation of God. He's the fullness of deity and bodily form. He's God in the flesh. Hebrews one says he's the exact representation of God. He's the glory and the radiance of God. So we get to know Jesus. We get to know God. And we're going to get to know a little bit more about Jesus tonight as we finish off and we close this series. So if you got your Bible, go to Matthew 26, Matthew 26, then we'll be in Matthew 27. And then a little bit later, we'll come back to 25. I know that's a little out of order, but we'll go 26, 27, and then back around 
to chapter 25. And tonight, again, we will see two attributes of Jesus, two aspects of Jesus' nature that seem to contradict one another. And that honestly will not feel too good tonight. These two attributes of Jesus and therefore God will seem in our minds to contradict one another, to oppose one another, but in Jesus perfectly and beautifully come together. So here's the first one. Number one, Jesus is more tolerant than you can possibly imagine. He's more tolerant than you can possibly imagine. Jesus was betrayed by Judas, the gospel tells us, someone who is very close to him, one of his inner 12 that walked with him and followed him, that he trusted. And Judas betrays Jesus to uh, the Pharisees. He, hand, they get, he gets arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane after he prays. Many of you know the story. The soldiers come up and arrest Jesus and they take him off to be tried before the religious priest, the high priest, and then to the Romans. And so Jesus has now been betrayed, arrested, and he's on trial. And here's what happens in Matthew chapter 26. It says that after the the Pharisees, the, the high priest had tried him and Jesus claimed to be God, claiming to be equal to God. They believed that he was being blasphemous, saying that he was equal to God. And here's what they did in response. They began to spit in Jesus' face. And they began to beat him with their fists. And then some slapped him, jeering, mocking. Prophesy to us, you Messiah, who hit you that time? Now remember, they're doing this to Jesus, who is the son of God, God in the flesh, spitting on him, hitting him, mocking him. Then in chapter 27, he's been on trial before Pilate and Pilate has offered Barabbas, the convicted criminal, or Jesus. He'll release one of them to him and the crowd says, no, 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 give us Barabbas, crucify Jesus. And so Pilate released Barabbas to them and he ordered Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip. Jesus was beaten with a whip to the point where his skin and the flesh and everything had been so ripped from his back that scientists will tell us you could begin to see the bones in his back. And then they turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. Some of the governor's soldiers took Jesus into their headquarters and called out the entire regiment. And then they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. They wove thorn branches into a crown and they pushed it down over his head. They placed a reed stick in his hand as a scepter. And then they knelt before him in mockery and they were taunting him. Hail, King of the Jews. And then again, these soldiers, they spit on him. They grabbed a stick and they began to strike him on the head with it. 
And when they were finally tired of mocking him, they took off the robe, put on his own clothes again, and, and then they led him away to be crucified where they would stretch out his hands over a piece of wood and they would take these spikes. You wouldn't even call them nails. They were huge spikes and they nailed them into his hands. And then they nailed them into his feet. And then they would lift that cross up in the air and then would begin the slow, torturous, painful death. Maybe the worst mankind has ever experienced. Because it would take so long for the person to actually die. When you were crucified on the cross, you, you would hang there. You would hang by the, the nails in your hands and with the nails in your feet and you would hang. But the problem in this position was that you couldn't breathe. And so to even catch a breath, you would have to push up on the nails in your feet and pull on the nails in your hands just to get up to take a breath. And then you would sink back down because the pain was too excruciating to stay in that position to continue breathing. And this would happen over and over and over again, sometimes over the course of a day. Jesus, the Son of God, was betrayed by those closest to him, was arrested, was tried, was spit on, was beaten, was hit, was slapped, was mocked, was crucified. The Creator was treated this way by his own creation. And how did he respond to this? How would you respond? If you're the creator and your creation is treating you this way, how would you respond? Well, here's how one of the disciples responded when they came to arrest Jesus. He's like, no, you're not. And he took out a sword and he came to fight. And Jesus said, put away your sword. Don't you understand? Don't you realize that at this very moment, my father could send 12 legions of angels, 72,000 angels in an instant that could defend me and fight for me. In a second, they could be here. Remember who this is. This is the same Jesus that not long before this was in a boat with his disciples and the wind and the waves are, are, are raging and the disciples are scared. They, they're not sure what's going to happen and they're afraid for their lives. And they say, this is Jesus who's, who's sleeping. Jesus, wake up, wake up. Don't you care? We're all about to die. We're all about to drown. And Jesus got up and to the wind and the waves, he said, And they obeyed him. And the disciples, it says, were terrified him. And they began to say, who is this? That even the wind and the waves obey his word. Who is this? Well, in week one, we saw that in John 1 and Colossians 1, this Jesus was the one that created everything in the entire universe. 
And not only did he create it, it told us that he actually sustains it by his word so that everything in the entire universe, all the way down to your body, everything operates and functions and is sustained and continues operating and functioning by the word of Jesus, by his spoken word. Forget Thanos and his snap. Jesus can speak in everything with a word that exists, could not exist. By his word, all things were made and operate and are sustained to this day because of his word. That's who this is. That's who's being arrested and tried and beaten and whipped and spit on and crucified. That's who they're doing this to. And how does he respond? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Forgive them? Are you serious, Jesus? That's how you respond? That's how the creator responded to his creation, treating him this way? Father, forgive them? They don't know what they're doing. And we see this kind of tolerance, if you will, this kind of patience all throughout the gospels. I mean, in the beginning of Jesus's ministry, when he calls Matthew, the tax collector, known to be one of the worst of sinners to follow him, it says that he walked up to Matthew in the midst of his sin as he was collecting the taxes, hand over fist more than he had to betraying the the Jews to, to the Romans. I mean, the Jews couldn't stand these people. And Jesus walked right up to him in the midst of his sins and Matthew, Levi, follow me. And Matthew got up and followed him. And it says that later he was at a dinner with Matthew and with his sinner friends. And it says that there were many people of this kind, sinners, that would follow Jesus. And Jesus would say, it's, Not the righteous, those who think they are righteous that I've come for. It's those who know they are sinners. These are the kinds of people that Jesus engaged, that he talked with, that he hung out with, that he was in relationship with. I mean, think about the woman who was caught in adultery when the religious police, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law bring the woman who was caught in adultery to Jesus. And they say, hey, the the, the law says that we could, that we should stone her. What do you say? And Jesus said, well, he who's without sin cast the first stone. And they put their stones down and they walked off because they knew none of them was without sin. And the woman looked at him and Jesus looked at her and he said, woman, where are your accusers? And she's like, I don't know. They're not here. And he said, well, then neither do I condemn you. And then as he was dying on the cross, One of the thieves that he was crucified between, recognizing who this is and that he deserving of death on his cross realized that the Jesus that was right next to him was not deserving of his death and recognizing who Jesus was, he said, remember me when you enter your kingdom. 
And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. This man had no time left on earth. He was dying on the cross. This man had no ability to like start going to church or, or to start doing some good things or, or help people or give or pray or, or read his Bible. I mean, this guy had no opportunity to do anything for Jesus. Yet Jesus in this moment extends grace to a thief that was dying on the cross right next to him. I mean, this was who Jesus was all throughout his ministry. We see it over and over and over again that Jesus would tolerate. He would have patience with his creation. In fact, Jesus ever having come to earth, God becoming flesh, the incarnation, shows us that God, Jesus, would move towards brokenness, would step into brokenness, would engage us. His creation that had sinned and rebelled against him. I mean, the, the very idea that, that God would become flesh in Jesus and make his dwelling among us, those who are sinful and evil and, and wicked, and then he would walk with us and, and talk with us. I mean, the very idea shows and reveals the patience, the tolerance of Jesus. And, and, and here's what I mean by that, that he would not punish our sin immediately and finally as it would deserve. That's what we're saying here, that when Jesus would tolerate and would have patience in others, we, we use another word called grace, meaning he doesn't respond as your sin requires him to respond in the moment. He tolerates, he has patience, he has grace with us. That's what we saw in John 1, that Jesus is full of grace. And so he doesn't respond the way that their sin or your sin deserves. He respond in that moment. Otherwise you wouldn't have made it past day one. If God did not have patience with you, if God did not have tolerance towards you, grace, the day you were born, you would have died instantly. Because the Bible says we're sinful from the time we're conceived in our mother's womb. We're sinful at birth. It's called original sin. And if God did not tolerate, if he was not slow to anger, if he was not patient with us, then his anger, his wrath would burn against our sin in that moment instantly. But his grace, his patience, his tolerance means that he does not punish our sin immediately and finally in that moment. But make no mistake, he will respond. Because Jesus is more tolerant than we can possibly imagine. At the same time, watch this, he's more intolerant than you can possibly imagine. Now, what we are about to read here is some of the hardest things you will ever hear in your life. It's been difficult this week reading some of these verses 
thinking about this and even thinking about this moment has brought me to tears on a number of times. This is the hardest stuff you will read in the Bible. But it also is probably the most important thing you will ever hear in your life. And so turn back to Matthew chapter 25. Jesus has been with his disciples and he's told them on numerous occasions, listen, listen, I'm going, I'm leaving. I'm going to be crucified and then risen again. And they don't get it and they don't understand and they don't want him to leave and they're upset. And Jesus would tell them, Hey, listen, it's better for you if I go because one's coming after me, the Holy spirit who will indwell you and comfort you and teach you and lead you and convict you and motivate you and spur you on to follow me. It will change you from the inside out. And so it's better if I go. But then Jesus also began to tell them, listen, I'm not just going. He would tell them, I'm actually, I'm going to come back. I'm coming back. And this is one of those times in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus says this, but when the son of man comes, when Jesus comes, so he, he's coming back. He came the first time, but Jesus would tell his disciples, I'm, I'm going to come back though. It's better if I go because the Holy Spirit's coming, but know this, I'm coming back. I'm going to return. I'm going to come back a second time to earth. And so when the son of man comes in his glory, all the angels with him, he's going to sit upon his glorious throne. And then it says all the nations. Now say this word with me right here. This one word. What is it? All. So all the nations. Here's what's cool about this word in the original language. The word picture here, the idea behind all, watch this, is all. It's all. And so you can say, well, not my Lord, all you want to. You can reject him. You can refuse him. You can say he doesn't exist. Whatever Jesus says, when I, I come back, I'm going to sit on the throne in all the nations. Like in other words, everyone who's ever existed all throughout history and in the future, everyone, all, all people will be gathered in his presence. And then he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. And then the king, Jesus, will say to those on his right, the sheep, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. So the king, Jesus, is going to return. He's going to sit on a throne. All the nations, everyone who's ever existed will be gathered before him. And then he's going to separate everyone into two groups. And on his right, he says, he's going to put the sheep, those who have followed the good shepherd, Jesus. And the sheep will be on his right. And he will say, come inherit the kingdom, the new earth that's been prepared for you. And the sheep will go to eternal life, paradise with their King Jesus. 
But then watch what happens next. Then the king will turn to those on the left and say, away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his demons. And then these people, the goats, those who did not follow the good shepherd, those who rejected Jesus, will go away, Jesus said this, into eternal punishment. But the righteous will go to eternal life. Jesus said those on his left will go to eternal fire and punishment. Paul, the church persecutor who killed and put Christians in prison, saw Jesus risen from the dead and became one of the greatest preachers and evangelists, church planters the the world has ever seen. He was convinced that Jesus had risen from the dead. He was convinced that Jesus is Lord, meaning he's God of all. And here's what Paul had to say about the return of Jesus in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. He said this, when the Lord Jesus appears, when he comes back, just like Jesus said he would, the second coming, when he returns, he will come with his mighty angels in flaming fire, bringing judgment on those who do not know God and on those who refuse to obey the good news of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with eternal destruction, forever separated from the Lord and from his glorious power. Paul says what Jesus said, that when he returns, those who have refused to obey the gospel, to give their lives to Jesus, to follow the good shepherd, to become sheep, the goats will go to eternal fire and eternal destruction forever separated from the Lord, like meaning there's no hope for change. They will experience an eternity separated from God in hell, where Jesus and now Paul have said, there will be eternal fire, eternal punishment. Now in the gospels, in the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have an account of Jesus, God becoming flesh, incarnating, making his dwelling among us. We have an account of the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. But you know, there's, there's, there's almost a fifth gospel account of Jesus in the Bible. It's the book of Revelation where it talks about in detail this second coming, the return of Jesus. Jesus said he was coming back. Paul said he was coming back. The the New Testament says Jesus is going to return. The the first time he was here, he, he died on the cross in our place, the lamb that was slain for us, who took the sacrifice who paid the the fine for our sin and became our sacrifice on the cross. He died and then rose again and then went to heaven, the Bible will teach us. And in Hebrews, it teaches us that now Jesus is in heaven at the right hand of the Father as our great high priest forever interceding for us and mediating between us and God so that we can have a personal relationship with God. That's what the the New Testament tells us. But then we get to Revelation and we see, oh, oh, Jesus is coming back. 
He's going to return. We've got almost a fifth gospel of the works and ministry of Jesus. They're not done yet. Jesus says, I'm coming back. And we get a detailed account of this in Revelation and what's going to happen when Jesus returns. Before Jesus returns to earth for this thousand year reign, it says in Revelation, before that time, the earth and its people are going to be subjected to this great tribulation, Revelation says, a time of intense suffering. And then after this time, this time of great suffering, this tribulation, Jesus will return. And then after this thousand year reign on earth where Jesus will reign as king, there will be a final judgment that Jesus talked about in Matthew 25, where he will separate the sheep from the goats and the sheep will go to eternal life, the kingdom that was prepared for them, the eternal state, the new earth. And the goats will go to eternal destruction. But this suffering and the tribulation and this judgment that will come, this final judgment that will come after Jesus' thousand year reign on earth is referred to in Revelation as the wrath of the lamb. Who's the lamb? Who's this lamb that's going to pour out all this wrath in the tribulation? Who's this lamb that's going to judge all the nations. Well, in the old covenant, the lamb was known to be an animal that you would sacrifice to pay for your sin. And whether it was a lamb or a bull or or, or whatever it would be, you, you would put your hand on the sacrifice saying and recognizing this animal is going to die in my place. My sin deserves death. The curse of sin is death. It's the fine for sin. But this animal, this lamb, will be sacrificed in my place so that I won't die for my sin. Its blood will be shed instead of mine. And then the high priest would take it and kill the animal and put the blood of the lamb over the mercy seat of Christ. And that lamb would pay the sacrifice for your sin. Well, the old covenant would prophesy of a new covenant where there would become a lamb that would be slain in our place once and for all. And that lamb is Jesus. And in Revelation, it says that even right now in heaven, and one day there will be a crowd that is so vast, no one can count from every tribe, tongue, and, and nation. And it says they are worshiping the lamb that was slain. Jesus. This is who and from who this wrath, the wrath of the Lamb is coming from. It's the same Jesus. And look what Revelation, the wording that Revelation uses to describe the wrath of the Lamb. The suffering will be so great, people will desire to die, but they won't be able to. 
Revelation says people will be forced to drink the wine of God's anger. That people will be tormented with fire. Smoke of their torment will rise forever and then there will be no relief. There will be pain and sores that will cause the the grinding, the gnashing, Revelation says, of your teeth. In other words, the pain will will be so intense, it will cause you to to grind your teeth together, clench your your teeth, your jaw will, will, will be clenched and your teeth will grind because of the pain and the sores to which there will be no end. Those who have not followed Jesus will be finally judged and thrown into a lake of fire Revelation says, where they will be tormented day and night forever. And the angels will say, this is their just reward. And they will say that the lamb's judgments, the wrath of the lamb, are true and just. And it says the angels will rejoice. And we'll talk about why they rejoice here in just a second. But these verses, these passages, and and many others, all throughout the New Testament, just like it, would lead Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology to give this, this definition of hell. He said, hell is the eternal Conscious, you you know what's happening. It's the eternal conscious punishment of the wicked. Eternal conscious punishment of the wicked. George Whitfield in the 1700s, a famous preacher, was known to often say this in tears. That after millions and millions of years of being in hell, people will realize they are no closer to the end and from when it begun. You see, because Jesus and therefore God is holy without sin. Righteous, he's perfect and good. He's just, which means he's a good judge who punishes evil and wickedness. Jesus is more intolerant than you can possibly fathom or imagine. He is intolerant of our sin. His tolerance, his patience means that he doesn't punish us immediately in the moment for our sin. But make no mistake, he will Respond. It's much like it was in Noah's day where it says in Genesis that wickedness was increasing and increasing to a point where God's patience, his tolerance had run out. And through Noah and his family, they would warn and tell the people God's wrath, his judgment is coming in a flood. And the people once again would mock and reject and not believe the warnings. And there was a day where God's tolerance, his patience ran out. And Noah and his family and 
Animals, two of every kind, went into the ark and God shut the door. Before the door was shut, though, there was a pleading, there was a warning. Come in through this door. It's a narrow door, but it leads to life. It leads to rescue from the coming wrath. So, so come in this door, this narrow door, and find life. All of you, you're, you're on this broad road that is leading to destruction. But Noah would plead with the people and say, but you can enter in through this gate to this ark and escape the wrath that is to come. And the people would reject it and they mocked him and they made fun of him and his family and Noah and his family and the animals went into the ark and God shut the door. His patience ran out and the wrath of God was poured out on the earth so that every living thing that wasn't in the ark died. Jesus is, and therefore God is tolerant in that he incarnated and came among brokenness and stepped into brokenness. He got close to us. He's, he's patient. He's tolerant in terms of proximity and that he engages us right where we're at in the midst of our sin and rebellion. He's tolerance in terms of that relationship and that proximity. But make no mistake, Jesus at the exact same time is more intolerant of your sin than you can possibly imagine. So much so that the wrath of this lamb will be poured out, he says. I'm coming back. And when I come back, it will be too late. And you might say, well, how could both of these be true at the same time? It's got to be either or. Well, the Bible teaches that in Jesus, they perfectly and beautifully come together. And this tension, his tolerance and intolerance is actually good. It's actually good news. And you might be thinking, bro, there's no way what we're talking about right now is good news. This is terrible. If this is true, this is terrible. Well, there's a question that has been asked, a philosophical question for hundreds of years. And you may have heard of it. It goes like this. If God is all powerful, which means he can do anything and he's good, then why doesn't he punish sin? Why does an all powerful and good God allow sin and wickedness and evil and suffering? How can an all powerful good God allow those things to happen? And first of all, the, the question is flawed from the very beginning because by saying that and even asking that, you're recognizing that the evil does exist in the world and that means there is good that exists in the world, which means you have a standard of right and wrong with, that, that it could only be given to us by a moral law giver. So, so the very idea that there is good and evil in the world and that you would recognize that and admit that shows that you've got a standard of right and wrong. We would all say in all times throughout history in every people group, everyone knows it's wrong to rape and to murder. We, we all know that. We all inherently know that we've got this standard of right and wrong and it's absolute. That comes from God, a moral law giver. It's the only explanation for the moral law that's written on us, that's innate in us. 
It can't be explained by any other means. So the question's flawed from the very beginning, but let's answer the question. If God is all powerful and he's good, then why doesn't he punish evil and sin and allow suffering? Why doesn't he put an end to all of that? Well, number one, this teaches us that Jesus will punish wickedness and evil and sin, and it will be more intense and worse than you could ever imagine. That the Hitlers and the Stalins will receive the just punishment of their wickedness and sin and evil. It is coming. Inside of all of us, we long for justice. And that's not there by accident either. We have a longing for justice, especially a longing for justice for those who would hurt those who are close to us. We want justice. Listen, that comes from God because God is just and we were made in his image, in his likeness. We too have a longing for justice, for ultimate justice in this world. And it is coming, Jesus said. When he will finally and eternally punish wickedness and sin. And that's why as this unfolds and as this happens, there is worship in heaven because of it. Because wickedness and evil is finally and eternally punished. And you might say, well, if that's true, then why does he, why does he wait? What? Why doesn't he come right now and put an end to it? Why, why doesn't he come right now and put an end to evil and wickedness and sin? Well, Peter, one of his close disciples said this, the reason why Jesus is waiting to return. The Lord Jesus is not slow in keeping his promise, Peter said. Instead, he is patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. The reason he's waiting, the reason he's patient with you and with me. With the wickedness and the evil of his creation. The reason he's waiting is because God in his nature and in his heart wants no one to perish. He wants all to repent of their sin and turn to Jesus that they might be saved from the wrath that is to come. I bet you're glad he didn't return before you gave your life to Jesus. I bet some of us have some family and friends that would prefer him not return before they give their lives to Jesus. Now imagine that heart, that concern amplified into eternity and you have just a taste of God's heart to wait as long as he possibly can so that no one, as many, as few as possible would perish and as many as possible would come to repentance and receive eternal life. That's why he is waiting. But make no mistake. He will return. He will come back. And he will 
ultimately and finally punish sin. But God loves you so much that even in the midst of your sin and rebellion, Romans 5, 8 says that he demonstrated his great love for us and that while we were yet sinners, rebels against God, he sent Jesus to die for us. John 3, 16 says that God loves the world so much that he gave his one and only son so that who would ever believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. You see, just like in Noah's day, God is saying to you, to those who are listening, come through the narrow gate. Give your life to my son, Jesus. Few people find it. But to those who will enter through the narrow gate, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father. No one gets to heaven except through me. I'm the narrow gate. Those who come to me, who give their life to me, will not perish, will not experience the just punishment of their sin, eternity separated from God and hell. Rather, they will be given eternal life. And as a sheep of the good shepherd, you will inherit the kingdom that was prepared for you. Your sin will be forgiven. You'll be made right with God. And you can know for sure that when you die, you're going to heaven. That can be yours if you would give your life to Jesus. And if that's you, man, go on our, our website, thecitylbk.church, and fill out our connect form and just let us know that you're giving your life to Jesus tonight. The Bible says today's the day, now's the time. Don't continue to test the patience of God. Today, give your life to Jesus and be forgiven of your sin. So this is good news because God will ultimately and finally punish sin. And secondly, he will put an end to suffering. You know, after this final judgment that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 25, when the sheep inherit the kingdom, at the end of Revelation, it says there's this new earth that will come down from heaven and all things will be made new. All things will be made new. The earth will be made new. Our bodies will be new and have this glorified nature like Jesus' resurrected body would have. All things will be made new. And so watch this, all the curses of sin on this earth and to us will be reversed, will be redeemed. And so we will live on a new earth where there's no more suffering. There's no more natural disasters because of the result of sin. There will be no more suffering. Our bodies will be glorified and will no longer be subject to pain and suffering and sickness. Cancer will be gone forever. Death is gone forever, Jesus said. Depression is gone forever. Anxiety is gone forever. Fear is gone forever, Jesus said. There will be no more tears, Jesus says, in this new earth, in this kingdom that was prepared for you because all things will be made new as they were in the beginning. God's perfect intended will. It will be like Eden all over again. A perfect paradise. There will be an end to suffering for those who inherit the kingdom. And listen, it says in Ecclesiastes that God has set eternity in the hearts of men. This is what we are longing for. 
This, this kingdom, this new earth, this new body, it's what our soul is longing for. We said this in week one, our, our soul is longing for Jesus, for King Jesus in this new earth, in the kingdom that was prepared for us. Our soul is longing for it. We're crying out for it, for all things to be made new, for all things to be redeemed. Our soul is longing for this, for eternity. Our soul is longing for Jesus. Who we said is real love. But not only is Jesus real love, John 1 says he's full of grace and truth. So watch this. This is what we said week one. Real love is all grace and all truth. These two cannot be divorced from each other. John 1 says that Jesus is full of grace and truth. They are not divorced in Jesus. They come together beautifully and perfectly in Jesus. And so here's what this means for us. Number one, we have grace with people right where they're at. We love people right where they're at. We engage people right where they're at. We have mercy with people right where they're at. We move towards people right where they are are at just like Jesus did because he was full of grace. And then at the same time, we tell people the truth that Jesus is Lord. He's Lord of all. This is his universe and he's the Lord of it. And in this series, here's what we now know and what we have said so far about Jesus being Lord. That means Jesus is God. It means Jesus has risen from the dead, conquering sin and death. It means Jesus is the way and there is no other way to eternal life. And it means now that Jesus is the judge who will separate the sheep from the goats. About eight years ago, I was in a small group, a Bible study with some other couples, some other friends of ours. And one of the ladies in that group was, was married to a man. She had recently given her life to Christ and, and her husband was not a follower of Jesus, was practicing and following Buddhism. But he was intrigued. And so we invited him to come with her and to read the Bible and learn about Jesus. So he started coming. He would ask questions and we would do our best to answer him. And I'll never forget this one night, everyone had left and it was just me and him. We're on the couch in my house. He said, Clayton, why are you Christians always proselytizing? It's just a big word that means we, we try to tell people about Jesus. He said, why, why are you always proselytizing, trying to convince people to follow Jesus? And I said, well, listen, if I really believe this to be true, and that if you reject Jesus and you will spend eternity separated from God in hell, then I would have to hate you to not tell you the truth, to not tell you about what I believe. If I really believe that, I would have to hate you to not tell you. And here's what he said back to me. He said, I can tell you really believe this. And I can tell you care about the eternal destination of my soul. And I appreciate that. You know, it wasn't that nine, it wasn't the next week, it wasn't the next month, but about six to nine months later, that man gave his life to Christ. 
Paul said this, I have anguish and sorrow in my heart for my brothers who don't know Jesus. Anguish and sorrow. And that anguish and sorrow led him to tell Timothy, so so I'll endure whatever it takes. I'll endure, I'll pay whatever cost. I'll endure whatever it takes so that those who don't know will know. Whatever it takes. I'll endure whatever cost so that those who don't know will know. Will you stand? We're going to have a time of worship and we're going to sing a song that is an old song. Many of you will know it. And I would invite you to sing it with us. And then after that song is over, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together as we finish out this series, discovering the real Jesus. And after this song, you're going to come forward and you'll take the bread and you'll take the cup. And Jesus said, this bread represents his body that was broken for you on the cross. And that the cup that you will take and drink will represent the blood of Christ that was shed for you on the cross. And Jesus said this, as often as you take this bread and you drink this cup, you remember me. You remember what I did for you. Jesus, we thank you for amazing grace. We thank you for a savior that died in our place, that took the wrath of God, was our wrath bearer, our sin bearer, that you who knew no sin became sin for us so that those of us who are in you might become the righteousness of God. Thank you, Jesus, for your body that was broken for us, your blood that was shed for us. Thank you for a kingdom that awaits us where there is no more suffering, no more tears. When all things will be redeemed and made new, we long for that day. And so we say with John at the end of Revelation, amen. Come, Lord Jesus.